You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to episode 155 of the podcast. My guest this week is... My name is Cosmo Baker and I am a DJ slash producer slash event producer uh, slash just kind of guy within the scene and the culture <laughs> been doing this for about 30 almost 35 years i've i've had the luck and the and the fortune to have crossed paths and worked with a tremendous amount of people everybody from the roots to opening sets for drake and jay-z to you know a lot of people within the dance community as well so i've had the great fortune of having some incredible experiences and meeting some great people. With over 30 years behind the turntables, Cosmo has worked with music royalty from Slum Village to Aesop Rocky to MF Doom, and within this episode, we're going to take you on an hour-long journey of storytelling on how a boy with perfect rhythm grew up to become widely regarded as an integral figure of the already rich Philadelphia DJ legacy, alongside contemporaries such as DJ Jazzy Jeff, Questlove, and Diplo. But before we get into the episode, let's continue to keep the podcast ad-free by going over to patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens. I have two tiers, one for $2 and one for $5. Pick your support level, and in doing so, it just lets me know that you like what I do, the effort that goes into these tales, and I can pay server fees and buy myself a cup of coffee. I value my Patreons. I talk to them. I chat with them. They suggest guests. They get episodes early. It's all love. So make sure you connect with me on all socials. And of course, the website is bedroombeethovens.com. The stars have aligned and Cosmo Baker is here. Episode 155. And as someone who's been in Time Magazine, you certainly didn't need to stop by this little old podcast, so I, I do thank you. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, that was some, something that I did uh, just a few years ago. Uh, I guess it was 2020 when there was the vote count that was happening here after the 2020 election. I, mean, I could talk about it if, if you'd like. Uh, yeah, sure. Because um, I, I did want have a question 
uh, regarding that because you know they kind of dub you as the the DJ who saved democracy. And I was wondering, you know, how hard is it to be in an environment where people like like if you're DJing a party, people are paying to be in that environment. You can rock the spot with your hands tied behind your back. But when you're in a spot where dancing and listening to music isn't people's first priority, how do you worm your way into their psyche to alleviate tension or distract them or connect with them? Because I think that's where the real skill lies, I think. That's a great question. And that's actually uh, – it's a really thoughtful question. and It's not so easy of an answer. You know, I, I think that people's experience with uh, with interacting with each other – in social environments uh, is something that's so innate to all of us. Uh, and the music provider, be it a DJ, be it somebody who's, you know, just playing a, a, an iPod or I'm sorry, I should say like a, a Spotify playlist or whatever uh, to a live band, you know, that takes many different types of, of roles. It can be passive. It can be active uh, in, in the case of being in a nightclub, you know, you're, you know, DJing and oftentimes that DJ is almost like a nameless, faceless person that's just kind of creating this full vibe, right? But, you know, over the course of the past decade or so, you know, DJing became a bit more of a spectator sport uh, in terms of, you know, when a DJ would get on stage and, and play for, uh, you know, play for uh, a festival or something like that. And everybody, instead of interacting with each other on a dance floor, they're kind of facing the DJ. And, you know, that's something that I first really started to experience when I was touring with A-Track in 2006. In the case of, say, what was happening in Philly in 2020 when we were doing that big uh, political activation, you know, it was a bit more of diffusion. Diffusion, like we were, we were. The aim was to diffuse a lot of, to be quite honest, like a violent temper that was happening out there in the streets of Philadelphia. So, you know, kind of the aim was to to take, uh, you know, to, to take these tempers and to take these attitudes and just kind of get them to simmer down and, and for people to see that, you know what, like we're in an environment right now where we're just kind of spreading love and joy. So like, let's kind of forget about, um, you know, any sort of vitriol or animosity that may have been happening at that particular time. You know, that's kind of it, it in a, in a broader sense, but it's easy and it's not. I think that a lot of people think that DJing is is easy in the sense that, you know, your, your average lay person would say, oh, yeah, I can DJ. I, I have great taste in music, which is, you know, could maybe be the case or maybe not, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, the way that a DJ is able to kind of work with energy uh, and to kind of ramp it up a little bit, know when to downshift, uh, when to bring energy down, when to bring it up, you know, take them on this journey. Um, you know, that's something that is not necessarily inherently living within somebody like that's a skill, which is definitely learned. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and it, uh, if I'm going on like Philly history too, like Hall and Oates, their origin story was pretty crazy because they were in two different bands. Hall was in the Temp Tones, Oates was in the Masters, and they were in Philly for a band competition when gunfire rang out between two rival gangs and in trying to escape they both ran into the same service elevator. So you got to love that Philly, even if there's violence, it creates serendipitous musical moments. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Philly is without question that, uh, you know, we're a, we're a beautiful city, but we're definitely rough around the edges. So when I first heard that introduction story uh, about those two, I was like, of course that makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you said though, like, so, so DJing isn't just like, Oh, I have good taste in music. I can rock a spot. You know, I, 
I got to admit, and I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm always embarrassed to have DJs on my podcast because I don't claim to be a musical guru. I think I know more than the average Joe. I've been able to have conversations with Buck Wild and Prince Paul and hold my own. But you'll be disappointed in me real quick. For instance, I never heard of Jean Carn. Uh, never heard of her. But that's why I like having DJs on because this deep musical well of, of knowledge, I can learn a lot when I walk away from these type of conversations. You know, that's part of the thing in regards to what I see my role as in being a DJ. The musical history and the legacy and everything that has kind of come before has informed me, not just as uh, a, a, an artist, uh, and has informed everything that I do in terms of DJ and what it is that I want to play. You know what? I remember hearing this song when I was, you know, six years old and my aunt used to play it. That's an important thing to me. You know, there's a saying that's been going around over the course of the past, uh, the, the, the past couple of years. And the saying is, uh, in a nutshell, we're losing recipes, right? We're losing recipes. And uh, uh, I think that the, what it is meant by that is that as time goes on and generations kind of come to their own, there's a bit of revisionist history that gets kind of put out there, especially with social media and everybody has an opinion and, and a platform to, to talk about it, right? So, you know, there are giants that have come before us, right? You know, musically, in the world of DJs, there are giants that came before me, right? You know, not saying that I'm a giant or anything, but, um, you know, so it's really important to me to kind of put everything in more in a broader context just where you can kind of say like, Hey, listen, what's that, what's that Lauren Hill line? Everything you, you, you said has already been done. Right. You know what I'm saying? They're like, yo, there are people out there who are actually shifting things. You know, it's kind of important, especially in this era where the attention span is so short and we're kind of been locked into like an iPod shuffle ADD mentality of kind of like what's new and what's next um that you know it's important at least to me you know that you know those who came before shouldn't be overlooked right gene karn is a is an incredible example right you know here's a here's a vocalist who a lot of people have never heard of but you know she was a really important figure in specifically in the sound of philadelphia in the 70s disco and and uh and and, and r&b but even outside of that, I mean, she had a whole career before that she was known as kind of like a disco vocalist. She was uh, married to a guy named Doug Karn, who was a, a, a jazz musician. And so she had this whole legendary career as a jazz vocalist. You know, it's the idea of kind of drawing all these commonalities and, and correlations and trying to put them all together and, you know, so yeah, so hopefully that's kind of what it is that I do, and I don't know, it's just basically a, a really nerdy lifestyle. <laughs> I'm a music nerd, Jello, so I can't help it, you know? Well, how much of these musical discoveries come out of the dollar bin at a record store, though? That's a great question. I think a, a tremendous amount of them. You know, I've been teaching for about 35 years. I've been collecting music longer than that. You know, surrounded by music the entire time. And I was saying that, you know, so much of what I know about music, I learned just by pulling records out and then reading the liner notes, you know, and going, 
oh, okay, cool. You know, there's this guy right here, uh, you know, uh, Eddie Henderson, who's playing on trumpet. Let me go see. Oh, this is an Eddie Henderson record. All right, cool. Let me pull this and like, oh, cool. This has this personnel or that personnel, right? You know, so when it comes to like, you know, accumulating knowledge, I mean, so much of it has been self-taught. And I know that I'm far from alone in that. I know that so many uh, people who are kind of involved in this, uh, that's kind of how they they learned about stuff, right? You know, it's a bit of like a, um, what do you call it? Uh, like a scavenger hunt almost, you know? You know, you, you find things and then you you look for, you know, certain record labels, certain time periods, you know, again, like I was saying, like session session musicians, right? And you can kind of put together a story just from doing the due diligence in that regard. There's a there's a quote from Cannibal Adderley, and he says, music ain't supposed to stand still. I think it maybe was sampled or something like that in the Black Star record or whatever. Um, but I always kind of took that in two ways. Like music is supposed to move in terms of what music does for you, you know, whether it be making you dance or just kind of uh, uh, giving you a feeling. Right. But music is supposed to, you know, music is supposed to move in terms of the, the evolution of it. You know, what somebody was doing in 1977, 1984, 1996, 2003, you know, obviously we're not going to be seeing the same thing, uh, you know, that uh, is here in 2022, but you know, the, the, the impact and the influence and the residual of all that has kind of came before, at least to me, informs where it is that we are now. And it should keep on going. Well, what, what about the record stores of today versus yesterday? Like, is Stranded Records just as amazing as Good Records, or it's just not the same? Man, I'll tell you, man, I miss going into record stores on a, <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis. You know, one of the things about going into record stores is that it used to be, at least for me, uh, in terms of going into getting like new releases, it used to be uh, a ritual where you'd go in and you'd you'd sit there and you'd hang out there for a few hours, um, and the DJs or whoever would be working on the record store would be there playing new music. And so, like that's where you would get a lot of your first exposure to to stuff that was coming out that was new. You know, this is obviously pre streaming services and, and whatnot. So, you know, there was something that was happening there um, that I don't think really can be replicated because you one would spend straight up hours in the record store and you'd be there and you'd meet other people, other like-minded music folk, other DJs, other musicians and whatnot. And it'd be out of that that you'd kind of forge these kinships. But, but you've been buying records since you were like nine and you, you kind of grew up in a musical household. You had lessons. I don't know if that's from... Uh, you know, earning allowance or doing chores. But, you know, as a father, if I saw passion for my kid at that age, I would recognize it. What were your parents' feelings on it? Because you you had to save up paychecks at a grocery store to buy a turntable. Why didn't your parents kind of throw you a bone and hook you up? Was it just, it's just overly expensive at the time? I see you've done your research. A <laughs> little, little bit, a little bit of research. This is going to turn into like a Nardwar type situation, huh? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling that. Yeah. Well, listen, my mom is always was always super supportive. You like more than supportive. My mom always, without question, encouraged me to be involved with whatever it is that my, my passions kind of uh, directed me towards. Right. As long as I was doing good in school and I wasn't getting in trouble, and you know, I think that that's kind of a 
you know, that, that that's kind of a, a, a common theme. But, you know, with the fact that, you know, my mom given me the support uh, in terms of encouragement, uh, you know, growing up, you know, we, you know, we didn't really have any money growing up. You know, we were a you know, working class family. First of all, it actually was, a, I won't say allowance, but it was lunch money that really kind of went into when I first started buying vinyl out of like a, like a regimented scheduled way, I would have a few dollars for lunch money and I'd be like, all right, cool. I'll just eat lunch at home and I'll take this $3 and 99 cents and I'll go and I'll buy a, a 12 inch. Right. You know, so, Oh, there's a new EPMD 12 inch. Right, I'm going to get that. There's a new De La Soul 12 inch. I'm going to get that. You know, so I was eating ramen at the house and buying records, <laughs> which is cool. I know that that's, I know that a lot of people can probably um, relate to that. I'm, I'm, I'm a grown man now and I'm still eating ramen and spending my money buying records. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, um, you know, I mean, I think that that's just definitely kind of one of the things that in, in terms of me at a really early age kind of knew exactly what it is that I wanted to do. Right. You know, um, you know, I, 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 I felt a very, very strong pull to it. And I was like, all right, cool. Let me, let me just kind of focus and dedicate myself to this, at least in my mind, you know, allow this to kind of be really part of who it is as, as a person. Right. Um, Cause it was already there. I mean, I was like, you know, I was buying tapes when I was a kid, you know, um, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, you, you know, you walk around, uh, you know, Chestnut street or market street, uh, in the eighties, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that, you kind of have to picture when you see like pictures of like Times Square in New York in like the seventies and the eighties, right. It was the place where you'd go down there and they would have all the Kung Fu theater and the, and the dirty movies and the, and the, and the, you know, the record stores were down there, right. Video arcades and whatnot. So, you know, hanging out down there, going down and, you know, I'd see guys on the corner with boom boxes and break dancing on cardboard on street corner, you know, playing, you know, man parish and, and fat boys and Houdini and stuff like that. So, you know, very early it was like, all right, cool. This felt like, oh, this felt like the, oh, this felt like a very comfortable, right? You know what I'm saying? This felt like this is where I'm home. Before you know it, 30 plus years have gone by and I'm, <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm sitting in my dining room, I'm looking around, I've got vinyl all around me, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And when you were, when you were six or seven years old, a stranger knocked on your door on Spring Street and gave you drumsticks and a practice pad. Apparently, this guy who would periodically come to practice his saxophone across the street had talked to you a few times, and you two had some sort of a, a mini lesson or a music discussion that prompted this man to get you a drum kit because he had, and I quote, never met a child with such perfect rhythm. Man, this is really a Nardwar situation, man. <laughs> yeah, and I'm saying that like with all with all reverence and respect and like and like I'm astonished. Yeah. Yeah. I was a kid and this guy would go and he would post up at this building. The building was actually the headquarters for the Boy Scouts of America. Right. And it was like a kind of a cool older building that I'd like to play at. Right. And this guy, big, I mean, big because he was an adult and I was a kid um, with a huge beard. And he'd go over there and he would just kind of play his saxophone 
you know, um, you know, in the late afternoon, big, you'd have like big tenor sax, right? And um, and I just loved going everywhere there and, and listening to him play. And I had um, do you remember uh, Hot Wheels cars? Remember yeah, the of course. Okay, Hot Wheels. So I had a um, I had a Hot Wheels cars carrying case that was shaped. It was round. It was shaped uh, like a tire. Right. So it was, and if you could imagine, it was probably, I'd say maybe 12 inches in diameter. So maybe the size of like a record. Right. And it was hollow because it's where you put all your cars in. Right. Uh, and you know, I would just go over there and I'd listen to him. And then one day I just dumped the cars out and grabbed some, some branches, like some sticks. And I fashioned some drumsticks from it. Right. And so I would just start playing the drum to him while he was playing the saxophone. I was what six, I guess, right? And I'm literally this is the first time I'm thinking about this in years. So I'm just gonna try to try to recall this with as much authenticity and accuracy as possible. Sorry, sorry, I'm going so far back. I'm sorry. And <laughs> let's go. I mean, you the, you know, the hook, line, and sinker, you got me you got me intrigued, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah, so like um so uh you know, he would go over there and he would play and I'd play the drum, he'd play his sax and I'd play the drum. It was definitely a, a cool little duet thing. One evening, my mom got a knock at the door, right? And she answers the door, and here's this guy, this big guy with a beard, right? You know, it was that guy, right? And he said, um, <clears throat> I don't know his name. I can't for the life of me, I don't know his name. But uh, he was a music professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is, you know, it's a it's an Ivy League school. Uh, and he came there with a practice pad, and he said, listen, I just, I, I, you know, I've been – playing music with your son over there on the, on the step of the the building. Right. And I guess he did say, I've never met a kid with a more perfect sense of rhythm in my life. So here is a drum practice pad. He gave it to my mom. And, and then the guy was off in the wind, like, you know, like never saw him again, never heard from him again. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. And that was cool. And I, and I had that practice pad and I practiced it for a little bit of time until I got a, distracted by something else <laughs> yeah that's your story that's that's what happened so as you as you start getting older dj drama went to your high school as well his thinking was he would go up the block after school and all the djs would have their names on flyers and his thinking was like, I, got, I gotta get my name on a flyer if i do that i'm good everything else is just extra that's dope. is did, did you have that same like mindset when you were in high school as well like i, I gotta get my name on a flyer Yes and no. I think that there's kind of a, there's two different ways and you can kind of say that it was about kind of getting eyes on me or get it or getting the attention. Yes. Uh, full disclaimer before I became a DJ and I guess I was DJing even without turntables, like kind of doing like pause mixtapes and, and um, compilations, like even in, in junior high, like seventh grade, eighth grade, right? So um, before I became a DJ, I was a graffiti writer. And that was always kind of like my first, that was my, my first thing, right? So in the world of graffiti, it is without question about getting your name out there, right? You know, graffiti in and in itself is just kind of this grand exercise and and mass marketing and branding right you know what i'm saying so like 
you know, I was, I was learning marketing in like seventh grade by having, figuring out how to market my name around the city and just being a, a, a little illegal miscreant. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, there was that. And there definitely was at least some point in those early days in high school where like I'd be at a party and I'd be DJing because a lot of my first experiences DJing would be like DJing a friend's house party or a basement party, things like that. Right. And without question, there was several times, many times that, you know, a a girl that I thought would was cute or pretty whatnot that, you know, never looked at me, never even paid me attention would like walk into the party and then see me behind the turntables. And I could tell, I I can't say I could read their mind, but you could kind of see that, the look on their face would be like, oh, oh, that guy, oh, you know? So there'd be kind of like, you know, that kind of recognition of being like, oh, this guy who's, you know, kind of quiet, kind of, you know, uh, you know, into his own thing. Oh, wow. So that without question was something that was like, oh man, I can get into this. Like I can, I don't want to say that it hooks you, but you know, it was definitely like a, a very, very nice thing. However, at the same time, one of the reasons, or one of the one of the the, the bigger draws uh, of DJing at that time, aside from the ability to sh- share music and the ability be, to be at a party and like I, we're going to listen to what I want to hear, you know what I'm saying? Which is great in itself. You know, when you're in, in high school, it's not really the easiest time for a lot of people, for a lot of kids. You know, you. It's very, it's very intimidating and be very overwhelming, especially for, you know, a kid who is kind of by nature somewhat shy like me, you know? And so DJing gave me an opportunity to be at the party and to be fully involved in the party, yet at the same time really kind of be in my own little safety bubble behind the turntables, right? You know, so I was safe there. Um, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about bullies or jocks or or anything like that, or I wouldn't have to worry about a, a girl that I maybe would like, and then I would just be so, you know, ridden with anxiety because I wouldn't know what to say to them. To them. You know, I can just be over here. Is that bubble, that safety bubble behind the turntable still apply when you're being snuck in the nightclubs in the back door? Like the nightclubs downtown risking their liquor license, getting shut down, adults looking up from the dance floor and seeing, you know, a a young adult or a teenager, but he's so dope you have to go with it. So now you're getting attention not from Stacy in your math class, but instead a grown woman who might have like cocaine in her pocket. You know, that that bubble, <laughs> it, it, I don't know, can even shield you from that kind of anxiety. And also, that notion shouldn't be understated. That's pretty amazing that that even happened. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, if anything, maybe the 90s was really conducive to kind of that loosey-goosey uh, uh, type of stuff that was happening. But, you know, in, in context for what you're saying, you know, the idea of, you know, I was doing house parties and loft parties and whatnot, and then some local promoters at actual nightclubs started to book me at originally for like all age or like 18 and up events at nightclubs. But then I would start doing these nightclubs and the actual nightclubs themselves would be like, this guy's kind of good. Let's put him on for like an off night. Let's put him on 
for like a Wednesday. And then that grew into like a Thursday. And I was still a kid. My mom would drive me to the nightclub. The one specific nightclub we're talking about is a place called Revival, um, which is right in downtown Philly in uh, Old City is the, the section. It's the place is close now, but you know, was the biggest, most debaucherous uh, after-hours club. So all the clubs would let out at 2 a.m., and everybody would go over to Revival. And, um, uh, you know, that's where it was all going down, man. Like you said, like all the drugs and all the, you know, the, the, you know, the sexually charged, ambiguous, you know, all sorts of wild stuff. And I'm like 17, I guess. And I'm like looking at all this stuff and I'm like, oh, man, I didn't realize that the world was like this. You know what I'm saying? Is the bubble still there? Yes and no. Like, I think that a lot of the people that I was working with, especially the staff at the nightclubs, the the security who would have to sneak me in the back, right? The bartenders who were very cognizant of, here's a kid who's underage. This is really risky, but we're not going to serve him a beer. I don't, you know, here's a Coke for you. You know, here's a, you know, here's a ginger ale for you. By and large, when in the service industry, I mean, you know, there's definitely a sense of community, uh, family anyway. So like everybody's looking out for everybody else. So I was surrounded by a bunch of people in the service industry, in those nightclubs, in that circumstances where they were all looking at me like a little brother. Right. So they were really fiercely protective over me, you know, and, um, it just kind of allowed me to be there and do what I was doing at house parties and in high school, but for a grown audience. And I guess one of the cool things about that was is that nobody was really quite doing things like that at that time because people were so locked into, you know, dance music, which is something that like I discovered, you know, I personally discovered later. Yeah, I remember playing Roy Ayers. I can't remember. It was running away. Right. And, you know, one of the, one of the bouncers was just like, who is this, who's this young baby playing this record, you know, a, and then also like, I've never heard joints like this in nightclub. It's it's all ways like, you know, goth music and trance music, you know? So, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my mind is just, my mind is just swimming right, man. You, you got all these questions. <laughs> well, I mean, now, now in present day, we're fighting about NFTs and cyber attacks, you know? So I like to go back to when, you know, the hobby was exhilarating and, and fun, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no question, man. No question. You're you're right about that, man. Let's go back to 1991, 1992. 30 years ago, Q-Tip on Low End Theory flipped Heat Waves, the star of a story, on Verses from the Abstract. How do you think he did? Born up in Harlem, reside now in Jamaica. The girl I used to rock, her mom's was a Quaker. And what does that make her? The evil money taker. The crazy move faker. I use that to break her. I've got a pretty good ear, right? But I actually, I knew that record. I never knew that it was Heat Wave until later. I never knew it was Star of the Story until later. There was a girl, Kaya Davis is her name. She was my first real girlfriend, right? And I made her a mixtape, and uh, Heat Wave Star of the Story was on that mixtape. So whenever I think of that song, I think back to that particular mixtape. And to Kay Davis, shout out to you wherever you are.
Did you get any people like that back in the day? Like uh, like when you're working at 8-Ball Records, do you have any cool stories, any big deals walk through the front door? Like I, That's how I first met Stretch, Stretch Armstrong, um, you know, who's uh, you know, a, a dear friend of mine now. But when I first met him, I thought he was a dick. I thought he was the biggest. <laughs> I thought he was such an asshole. Because uh, he would come into 8-Ball and he would kind of sh- peek, peek his head in the window and then like, you know, wouldn't like, I'd be like, oh, that's Stretch Armstrong. And he would like, He's a tall guy, and I'm a short guy, and he would pay me no mind. I'm oh man, that guy stretch, he's dicks, pay me no mind. I'm, I'm on the set, so I'm on the set, son list, man. You know what I'm saying? But um, no, but the other thing that was cool about um working at Eight Ball was um, you know, at, at the time the 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 studio at Eight Ball had one of the only lathes in uh in New York. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a lathe is, it's a it's a machine that cuts an acetate lacquer of a record. So, you know, before you could burn, before digital, right? Before you could burn something on a CD, you know, much less actually have it as a WAV file. If you had a one-off record that you wanted to get played, um, you'd have to make a dub plate, which is they literally would have to cut the record in this special machine in an acetate plate, right? And it was a very uh, intricate and, and tedious process. And I would watch these guys as they set it up and learned how to do it. It was like alchemy, right? You know, they'd have to spray a little water here and have some some air blowing over here and tubes all over the place, right? But the cool thing is whenever 8-Ball would have a new record out that they would cut on the lathe, they would usually send me who was like low man on the totem pole, right? To take the records and, and to give them to illustrious DJs. So that also gave me not just an opportunity to get more involved in the culture, but it gave me an opportunity to meet a lot of these people. And then subsequently, you know, I got a chance to, you know, build relationships and then ended up like opening for people like Frankie Knuckles is playing over here at Sound Factory Bar. Take the new thing. And to go down there and hand him the the acetate, you know, here you go, Mr. Knuckles and whatnot, you know, um, I'm hanging out. And then, you know, within a few weeks, I'm getting asked to, you know, to DJ in the side room. So, you know, so it was without question a, a really cool and a formative experience to kind of be there involved. Working at a record label in New York in the 1990s at a time when things were just so wide open. Yeah, there's a there's a guy who produced for Billy Joel named Joe the Butcher, and he started an imprint called Rough House. Not Suave House, not Swisha House, but Rough House. And they had everyone from Nas to Criss Cross to Chiba to DMX to Cypress Hill to the Fugees, and yet nobody really knows who they are. Well, um, Joe and his brother Phil... Called the Butcher Brothers, right? You know, and um, they're uh, they're Philly Philly legends. I think that they overlook Roughhouse in the sense of like not kind of giving them their due, um, because it was this little indie imprint out of Philadelphia, which then eventually got uh, you know bought out by Columbia. I think it was Columbia, and then Sony bought Columbia. But like this was like the this little powerhouse here in Philly, and like you said, like you know they put up. You know, they they put out Crisscross, right? You know, which sold millions of records. They put out they they dropped the ball on Nas, but they had Nas first, right? Um, they had DMX first. They put out the Fujis. They put out Cypress Hill. You know what I'm saying? It's just it's like you know, there was a, a span of time there where they were selling in the tens, if not like hundreds of millions of records, and it was just this kind of this tiny little operation 
based at least originally based in North Fourth Street at Studio Four, which is a a, a pretty amazing and legendary uh, recording studio. But yeah, I was a I was an intern. I think I was sixteen or so, maybe sixteen, maybe seventeen. Um, at intern at Rough House, and uh, that was my first look at uh, the inner workings of the music industry. Kansha Hawkins Studio. What was it like? What were some of the beats of yours that you made there? How did it get stolen? What major artist ended up snatching it? And are you still mad about it? The Kansha Hawkins is, is an area uh, in the outskirts of Philly. It's not Philly proper. Um, but it's kind of in the Philly metro area. And then Rough House moved from its Philly studios to Contra Hawken. And then me and a buddy of mine, uh, Kenny, uh, he had a record label called Illadelph Records and was doing a lot of stuff with a, like an artist called Monk with the Funk, Stewie Newcomb, like Philly indie stuff. This is the mid to late 90s, right? And we were doing a bunch of, we were doing a bunch of music out there. Uh, and recording was like an opportunity for us to kind of, you know, use a, a proper recording studio and, you know, put this down on, you know, two inch reels. We were usually recording on a, on ADATs. Um, but I don't want to say any names, um, because, um, you know, obviously, you know, everything is all water under the bridge now, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and also would be the type of thing to, to say like, well, how can you prove, you know what I'm saying? But it just always seemed mad coincidental that we'd be in one studio and we'd, we'd, we'd be putting out, we'd be producing stuff, right? And, you know, that stuff would be up in the studio, we'd leave them on the tapes or whatever. And then, you know, not too long afterwards, an artist would come out with a song on their album with the same beat, maybe, you know, altered slightly, you know, another artist would come out with something or like, you know, big artists. They don't, don't want to say names, but like big artists, right? You know? With a with a remix and oh, it's the same beat, it's the same programming. It just changed a little bit. They got a little, you know, track masters kind of sparkliness to it or something like that. You know, so yeah, I mean, but I, I think that that's pretty prevalent in the in the in the in the game. You know, it, without question, it, it it put me off of the the industry and production in general for quite a long time. It just really kind of gave me a distaste to the to the record industry uh, in general. But, you know, I mean, when you're, you're a dumb kid and you don't really know what you're doing, you, you make mistakes and, you know, you just kind of kind of chalk it up to the game, I guess. Well, let's, let's talk about something that's, uh, that'll put a good taste in your mouth. Let's talk about something good about music. Um, can you tell me who Matthew Africa is and why he's so amazing? First of all, just an, an amazing dude, a gentleman, a hell of a scholar, one of the Bay Area's, like, greatest diggers maybe record diggers and like so matthew his story i don't think that i could even tell tell the extent of his story because he's such a legendary uh figure especially in the bay area you know he was involved on the radio with uh benny b you know from like abb records right so him and him and him and Benny were involved, and they had a, a radio show for years, if not like over a decade. Anyway, so Matthew was kind of preeminent in the record digging game, and and uh, you know just kind of um, the scene. And uh, I was introduced to him through uh, DJ Eleven, who uh, was my one time uh, partner with the Rub. And Matthew was in the on the East Coast, 
decided he wanted to come to Philadelphia. He had never been to Philly before. And, you know, the idea of uh, the, the concept of digging for records in Philly is always kind of like a, been a thing. So I said, yeah, absolutely, man. You know, f- you know, friend of, friend of 11s is a friend of mine, you know, come to Philly. And uh, he, he came and him and I just kind of hit it off immediately. You know, just kind of became kindred spirits. It was funny. I had a little old late 80s um, Honda CR. X or whatever, that kind of old two-door Honda. I remember Hoopty. those cars. Oh, yeah, the hatchbacks. The little hatchbacks, yeah. That was like my <laughs> right, you know? And um, and the radio was all jacked up. So in order for the radio to play, um, there was a screwdriver in the radio that you had to kind of jiggle the screwdriver around in order to get the station to come in, right? And there was a tape that was stuck in the tape player. It couldn't eject it, so that's the only tape it could play. Uh, and that was uh, the Rolling Stones exile on Main Street, right? You know, and after the fact, Matthew said to me, the fact that you, of all the albums in the world that you had exile on Main Street stuck on your in your tape deck in your car told me that you and I were going to be lifelong friends, Cosmo. So I was just like, hell yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But um, brought Matthew to this place called Val Shively's, which um, I mean, a lot of people know about it. It's kind of like this legendary 45 spot. In Philly, uh, Val Shively is a record dealer who's been going back, goes back to the 60s. His spot has like, you know, over 4 million 45s and whatnot. It's a real trip. Uh, I actually read an article in a Smithsonian magazine about him recently. So I brought Matthew there and he did his thing. I did his thing. It was so great. And then um, kind of in passing with the conversation, uh, he asked me, "Yo, Kyle, like, what are a couple records that, like, you know, what are some records that you just can't, you can't find? You know, like, what's on your, what's on your want list, man?" And I, the first two that I thought of was, uh, I said, "Well, listen, man, there's like two Philly artists. It's funny that like, I can't ever find. You know, I really would love a copy of Lee Morgan live at the Lighthouse. You know, I'm a big jazz fan, and Lee Morgan is a, a Philadelphian. You know, so I said, you know, that's a big, big, big time one for me." And uh, I said, there's another record. It's The Ambassadors. I ain't got the love of one girl in my mind, which, um, you know, like record has, well, no, that's the, that's the, um, the, the sample for Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. Um, yeah, those are two records just kind of off the top of my head. It's funny. Living in Philly, you never find them, right? You know, he says, oh, that's wild, man. Wow. And um, he went back to New York. So apparently went back to the Bay. Uh, and, uh, a couple weeks later, maybe not even that long ago, I wake up and I go downstairs, I check my mail and I look in the mailbox and there's a package for postmarked from Matthew Africa in Oakland, California. And I opened the, the package and it is those two records and he had them or somehow got them. I don't know. Or he had them, you know, and he just off the strength, which is just like, these are yours, you know? And, um, you know, to me, that's something that's one of the things that has informed just the way that I want to move through life. You feel me? Um, you know, giving is always better than receiving by a thousand times, you know, the idea that you can give to somebody and what it is that you're getting, maybe something which is intangible, but it, it, it far outweighs anything that is material um, by, by, by infinity. Right. Um, and specifically with, with music, with records, right. You know, 
like I was having this conversation with, uh, gosh, I can't even remember, um, somebody recently, you know, and it's just like going through records and like, yeah, I've got, you know, how many records I have right now? I have eight, nine, 10,000, you know, and counting, you know, 13, if you count the 45, blah, 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 right. You know, at some point I probably have with 20, right. You know, I'm okay with getting rid of stuff, right. I'm okay with getting rid of stuff. And, you know, I'll never see it again. It doesn't matter to me. Why? Because I know that if I get rid of something or if I give something to somebody, right, that's going to be where it's supposed to live, right. You know, you want to give this stuff a home, right. You know, so, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, just kind of that act of kindness that that man, Matthew, uh, showed to me, spoke to me and without question impacted me in a way that still reverberates and influences the way that I act as a human 20 years later, almost 20 years later, you know, really speaks to who that man was as, as a human and as a person. And, uh, you know, he passed away, uh, in a, in a car accident in 2013. Uh, and, uh, I remember being was in Portland when I got the news and uh, I was actually on my way to, to San Francisco playing like two or three days later. Uh, and uh, it was me and Jazzy Jeff and Shortcut. Um, Jay Boogie was playing there as well. We we're playing a do-over, right? And uh, I opened up my set with that record. Uh, but I had to tell the story. I told the story. You know what I'm saying? That was kind of my way of given back to the Bay Area, to the community that had raised him. So, uh, you Matthew Africa, bitch. Yeah, man, you got me. You got me. <laughs> I'm in my feels today right now, man. Uh, he was a great dude, man. Matthew Africa was a, a hell of a dude. Yeah. Who's this suspicious character strapped with the sound profound? Similar to round spit by Derringers. You're in the Teradome like my man Chuck D said. It's time to dethrone you clones. I wanted to bring him up because I I wanted to bring more awareness to his name and also kind of get an inside peek into just kind of how good of a character DJs can be. And it kind of segues into, um, you know, kind of this pandemic that we got and the effect on live events and how you were able to switch lanes a bit. So to to preface, you're, you're teaching classes to kids who are being homeschooled, doing webinars for corporations and organizations. But what do DJs like Danny Tanaglia or DJ Cool Herc who are in their 60s where pivoting or learning new technology is probably past their grasping? And I'm, I'm just spitballing uh, using their names as an example. They might be uh, super in tune with tech. I'm just using it as an example. But adapting to a new world, the younger you are, the easier it is. So as you were managing your new streams of revenue, did you also witness some other DJs like kind of having a hard time? This, without question, I believe is part of a, a longer story uh, in terms of you know the role of a DJ, the um, the platform for DJs, understanding that things are, are moving at such a, a breakneck uh, speed. Clubs are closing. This is pre-pandemic, right? The climate is shifting. It's less about in a communal or interactive experience and a more spectator sport, right? You know, there's without question a, a disparity and almost like a, a hierarchy in terms of Within the DJ community, it's almost like a very, it's very, it's a very classist thing that's what's happening, right? So, you know, I think that all this stuff 
there's all these there's all these uh, contributing factors um, that uh, may uh, contribute to the malaise, if you will, uh, in terms of trying to figure out what's new and what's next. Uh, you know, and progress also can be incredibly fatiguing. No, none of us knew what was going to happen, right? Uh, you know, I went from you know, being out to, able to, you know, to go to a, a party or a nightclub to not being able to see my mom out of fear that I was going to kill her. Like fucking dark, really, really the horror of that time. I, I think that really shouldn't be understated. I really recall some nights at the you know, in that time period where I was just like, I feel so isolated. I feel so alone. I feel that probably a lot of other people out there feel that way, and I want to find some sort of way to connect them. Let me just start playing disco records on uh, on Instagram Live, right? You know what I'm saying? And then in doing that, it was doing it. I was doing it because it was giving me some sort of catharsis, you know. So there definitely is the case of of DJs of, of a certain generation who have been able to adapt. Um, Ultimately, I think it's just about like what it is that it gives back to you. I mean, you know, I now have streaming shows three days a week and I've got hundreds of like loyal listeners, people from around the globe that, you know, I, I check in with them every, you know, three times a week and it's rad in the sense of like, oh man, who would have thought that this time in this day and age that, you know, like this would have been an added way for me to connect with people around the globe. So like... You know, I I know that I can't be the only one in 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 feeling that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can't be a DJ for thirty two years and not have some kind of you know emotional, some kind of trauma. You know, even even taking the pandemic away, when you reflect on your own identity and your art, major labels are garbage. Streaming services don't pay enough. Now the pandemic, it's like, man, why don't more people love what I do as much as I do? Why is it dependent on influencers and content generation? So. Before you discovered all this stuff being new and exciting, did you find yourself in like depressed when it first started? That's a fantastic question. Yes, I do think that personally, speaking of my own experience, yeah, I mean, you know, you have those ideas of of, of worthiness and self doubt, and you know the you know like my name is Cosmo Baker. You know what I'm saying? Like that's you know that's my name. That's also a brand. That's also like this identity. You know, it's just like well, like. If, you know, if, if, if my, my show is not a sellout, you know, or, or if I don't get X amount of posts on this, like, you know, how much does that reflect on me as a person? Right. You know what I'm saying? Which is all bull crap. That's all bull crap. But these are the lies that we tell ourselves in our mind because our minds are really weird things. Right. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that everybody has kind of had, probably had dealt with that in, in some regard, especially as the landscape has changed. And you saw that there was a commodification of, you know, how much one is worth because of social influence or because of stuff which, you know, uh, any sane person would say would say is at the very least mundane, if not at the most, you know, bullshit. Yeah, so I, I definitely have felt that. At the same time, it's like that shouldn't dissuade why it is that we do what we do. If I really wanted to 
be a rich person, I would have gone into investment banking, right? You know what I'm saying? I would, I would have done something like that. I would have been a hedge fund dude or whatever, you know, one of those crumbs. If I was a hedge fund dude, or if you kind of, kind of flip it all the way into the other end of the spectrum, if I was just some guy that was selling, you know, hot dogs on the street, not there's anything wrong with that, right? I was selling, you know, if I was washing windows on the street, right? I would still be DJing. It's because something, something that I love, and it's something that I, I just have a you know, desire to drive to do, just to do something which makes me feel as if though I'm connected to this music. People who I think really kind of understand, you know, that, you know, they're part of this, they're part of this, this tribe, they're part of this community, right? That those feelings and that the, the feelings of insecurity and the feelings of, of depression and despair, just because like, ah, oh, man, everything's changed. And, you know, the, you know, it's all about money. Well, I mean, man, you know, it's always all been about money. You know what I'm saying? It's, you know what I'm saying? It's, you know, you know, I say that shit was sweet in the '80s or in the '70s or in the '50s. I mean, man, it's always it's always been about that, man. You know? So yeah, so it's I think it's a really natural thing to to kind of get those have those feelings. Anything that you want to plug, promote, shout out, I'll I'll give you that chance. Well, this is really dope. And first of all, thanks for having me, man. And, and shout out to shout out to you and 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 all the rest of the people who uh, uh, and all the listeners, of course. Uh, and I, again, I said at the very beginning of this, I was like, oh, I feel really pleased to have been involved with this. Uh, but after the questions that you asked, this was a hell of a trip, and I want to let you know how much I appreciate it. Super, super dope. Uh, so thank you for that. And. Um, and yeah, man, you know, listen, you know, like I, I'm constantly working, I'm constantly doing stuff, I'm constantly working on projects, both music and otherwise, you know, please make sure you go out and vote, you know, register to vote, uh, tell somebody that you love them. And, uh, you know, I'm on Twitch. That's what I'm promoting right now. So I'm on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash Cosmo Baker. I've got a Monday show, which is the remedy, which is like a 26 year old brand on still going uh disco verite is on fridays at 7 p.m they're both at 7 p.m but disco verite is at seven and you know i play all vinyl for the most part it's fun it's a lot of fun uh, i do jazz on sundays so like 11 30 a.m it's just fun you know what i'm saying and um i will be back in your city soon so uh follow me on social media it's at cosmo baker on Twitter at Cosmo Baker, Instagram at Cosmo Baker. Um, I have a TikTok. I just haven't used it yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, and that's that, man. You know, um, everybody be good, be good to one another, and um, you know, and um, and you know, let's go Sixers. Trust the trust the process. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when you come to Houston, I'll buy you a drink. No doubt. No doubt. I'm into that. Same back at you in Philly, my brother. Thank you. Thank you. You might not have a TikTok, but you're one of the only world-renowned DJs with a LinkedIn page. So thank you for your time and (laughs) chopping it up with me. I do have a LinkedIn page. (laughs) Yo, also, shout out to that one DJ on LinkedIn that keeps on sending me event reminders to his party on LinkedIn. Like, bro, come on, man. Come on, man. (laughs) No, he's using the platform. I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not going to air out your name, man. But come on, man, come on. You know, <laughs> shit. I'm not going to your party, B. Not on LinkedIn. Come on. <laughs>